Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. A place where no one looks forward to a big storm except maybe the surfers. Diehards descended on Point Judith over the weekend to take advantage of the unusually large curls, courtesy of Henri. My colleague Brian Amaral caught up with a few of them, including Rachel McCarty, who brought her board out on Friday and then returned on Saturday afternoon. The waves just kept getting better the longer we were out there, McCarty said. I was late for dinner. I said, screw it. It's better to be out here. On today's show, we bring you two perspectives on the impact and aftermath of Tropical Storm Henri, which barreled into Rhode Island on Sunday. First, we'll hear from Carlos Munoz, my Globe Rhode Island colleague and one of the producers of this podcast. On Sunday, Carlos put on his waterproof pants and chased the storm like the best of them. Then we'll hear from Mark Pappas, the head of Rhode Island's Emergency Management Agency. He's the guy who oversees disaster preparations and response for the state. We'll be back with Carlos and Mark after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Joining us today is Carlos Munoz from the Globe Rhode Island Bureau. We are sitting here on Monday, uh, one day after Tropical Storm Henri hit Rhode Island. It, it made landfall in Westerly, the fir- first place to make landfall. And, and just to explain, you were a man on the coast. You were a man in the 70-mile-per-hour gusts along uh, the Point Ju- in the Point Judith area. Tell us what you did to prepare to go into that kind of weather and what it was like when you got there. Sure. Um, I've experienced some of this in Florida. We had several tropical storms come uh, through the Sarasota area where I was living at the time, and uh, I didn't expect to see anything like that so soon, but I still had the stuff. Um, I mean, I just wore uh, waterproof pants, shorts, uh, kind of dressed light, 
um, waterproof shell jacket and a, a hat that I almost lost two seconds after I got down to Point Judith yesterday. Yeah, so. yeah it sounds like it got a little hairy there at Salty Brian Beach or at, at Salty's Landing. Um, tell us about the shingles that were coming your way. Sure. You know, I, I on my way down, I didn't expect it to be perfect. I saw a lot of utility trucks. And then when I pulled into, uh, it was Salty, Salty Brine State Beach, I went over to Salty's Landing where there were a bunch of people standing under a pavilion. So I thought, hey, this is probably a good spot. It wasn't a great spot to stand right next to uh, the Salty's Landing. Uh, there's a kind of an A-frame roof right there. And I was looking at a, a park bench sort of. And... Uh, there was water underneath it, so I wanted to see if there was uh, some tide coming up. And as I was standing right there on the railing, a, a couple pieces of the shingles ripped off the roof from the back side, so I didn't see it, and just like pelted the ground in front of me. <laughs> and so I took a step back. Well, I'm glad, well, I'm glad you came out of it unscathed. So, uh, and later you headed up to the Narragansett Town Beach area uh, near the seawall there. And I think Rhode Islanders often th when they think about a hurricane they, they think of those towers there because that uh was one of the few things uh to emerge from that 1938 hurricane and uh, tell us uh what you saw when you got up to uh, narragansett town beach well i kind of parked a little bit up from the beach in case there was any storm surge so i ended up uh, walking over there it's kind of like an open area just before you get to the uh, two towers uh, and then there's the Coast Guard house right behind that, the seafood restaurant from the 40s. Also, it was damaged during Hurricane Sandy. Uh, there were a lot of people just standing along the edge of the seawall, taking the spray as the, uh, as the waves came in, just slammed those rocks and then just spit seafoam right over the top, which is kind of gross if you think about it, because seafoam's got just full of pollution. <laughs> it's like black. Um, but people were enjoying it. Some were a couple of people uh, who were braver than me were walking on top of that seawall, which is kind of dangerous. Uh, one of the things uh, they did was they closed that to traffic. They really didn't want people there because that those Narragansett piers are places that almost every major storm somebody is swept out to sea, mm. and uh, that's one of the things that they were looking for, trying to keep people back. But uh, I think for the most part, people uh, who came to sea stayed back safely. But the wind there was so strong that um, it was just it was holding you back. It, it was pushing you off your feet. I saw a couple kids standing on the top of stairs and just leaning forward, almost like a trust fall oh, into the man. wind. What could possibly go <laughs> wrong? Um, you also spoke to a mother and a daughter who had actually come to that area for uh, because they considered it safer, right? Yeah. Um, Mary and Dorothy Phelan, uh, Narragansett residents who lived a couple blocks away, have a house that's surrounded by trees. And in that neighborhood, a couple of trees, older trees, had snapped and just fallen across the road. They were really concerned that one of the trees around their house was going to break and just crush their house. So that fear told them, hey, I need to go to the town beach. <laughs> Um, and I, I understand you had a celebrity sighting, uh, at least a uh, Weather Channel celebrity sighting of Jim Cantori, not the guy you want to see in your town, right? Right. He was actually staying inside the Coast Guard house. They, they were putting him up there to, uh, to do his shoots. And uh, he popped out a couple of times. And when people see him, they automatically start pointing because, you know, you see that big, uh, you know, hulky guy, Jim Cantori, the, uh, the Thunder Snow Man. And uh, he's getting sprayed by this sea foam, so it's, it's kind of uh, 
it, it's kind of ironic. It just kind of looks like that snow scene, but <laughs> um, he was out there doing a couple shots right on the uh, off the Coast Guard house, and people watched and took pictures. That that sounds like it was one of the more intense areas. I mean, po- the uh, this morning we saw peak wind gusts uh, recorded at 70 miles per hour in Point Judith, 69 in Black Island at the Black Island Jetty, uh, 69 in Kingston, uh, 68 at Rose Island. Um, so did, did, were you, you seeing gusts uh, that, that strong out there? I started out at Point Judith. That's where Salty Brine is near, uh, Galilee, Jerusalem area, and immediately backed off that area. It's not something you want to you don't, we go out and cover the storms and we want to see the effects so other people don't have to, but you don't want to put yourself in danger. And I didn't feel it was really uh, great conditions right there, right on the edge of where the storm was coming in by two in, by an inlet. So I backed off and came to Narragansett, but the wind was easily uh, 50 miles per hour. Tell us about Black Island too. That often takes the brunt of uh, the hurricanes, the tropical storms that roll through this area. And I did uh, talk to a couple of people who out on the island during the day, and it sounded like downright biblical out there. You had first the, the winds and the rain, but then complete calm and, and then thousands and thousands of dragonflies, which is better than locust, I guess. But tell us about uh, how Black Island did. The winds there, I think, were around 70 miles per hour, too, or if not greater with gusts. But uh, that's just... Uh, that's a place that probably took the the hardest hit from this. And, you know, I saw the post from the police department and everything. It looks like things turned out okay up there. And uh, give us some perspective on how this compares to the storms you saw when you were a reporter in Florida. This reminded me of Hurricane Irma. And Irma actually came towards us as a Category 5, but then dropped down to a 1-2 before it passed us. But it knocked power out uh, throughout the entire area for two weeks. So I was, uh, I was thinking that that could also be the scenario here in Rhode Island, depending on how it came in. Um, it sort of veered west immediately after it crossed into westerly, and uh, we got what was, is known as the dirty side of the storm, which is the windy side. That's the one that's going to do the most wind damage. And, and what do you, you know, you see on Twitter, some people saying, oh, the media overhyped this, they're overblowing it. Uh, it's, you know, the storm was a big nothing burger. But um, what do you, what, what's your response to that kind of sentiment? Sure. Uh, nothing burger, lame burger, dud, uh, a lot of disappointment in, in just the strength of the storm. And I know that, that when people hear hurricane, there's a, a little, you know, bit of excitement about, you know, how something in the weather can be so phenomenally strong. But when you experience that and you actually see the disaster, and I was at Hurricane Michael for nine days after the, after the storm hit, and you see people out in the woods who are just sleeping in tents because they lived in an RV park and it got completely blown over, crushed by a tree or something like that. And they're talking to you about how, and the woman I did talk to was talking about how her daughter was at Mexico Beach and she still hadn't heard from her. She had a dead cell phone, no way to charge it. You know, when the power goes out, you can't pump gas. The water company stops pumping water because uh, it's not being filtered properly. There's a lot, and storm surge gets into the systems, the water systems. You're going pretty much uh, primitive at that point. This is like the, like that uh, big fear, kind of like the uh, the Y2K thing where you lose all the power and you don't have uh, 
any of your uh, convenient resources. If that storm had come in and done the damage that it, it could have done as like a category one or a two, it would have hurt people. It would have destroyed homes and changed lives. Well, Carlos Munoz, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Ed. Next, we'll hear from Mark Pappas. Mark is director of the Rhode Island Emergency Management Agency, a position he's held since 2018. He's basically the state's point person whenever disaster strikes. We got him on the line Monday as he was out surveying damage across the state. Mark Pappas, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, happy to join in. and Thanks for having me. Uh, you just got back, I believe, from touring some of the damage from uh, Tropical Storm Henri out there in Rhode Island. Can you tell us what you've seen this morning, what communities got it worse, and what images stand out the most in your mind? Yeah, I'm actually still out in the field. I'm with uh, Senator Jack Reed and the governor, and we're touring uh, spots around the, the state. Thank you, Senator. And we're actually on site at a, at a live uh, fire on a pole from the damage caused by uh, the storm uh, that came through yesterday. So, you know, it's still an active scene out here. They're working on poles, and this one just started on fire as we're coming up, coming by it. Oh, where, where's the pole that's on fire? Yeah, it's right in South Kingston. Uh, you know, near some tree damage. And what caused the fire? Uh, I think the, the electrical crews working on it caused a issue with the feeder line. It goes onto the pole and it kind of blew the transformer. <laughs> it's still uh, an active, uh, you know, uh, response going to the storm for sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, tell us what it looks like out there. Is there a lot of wind damage, water damage? Yeah, so, I mean, I think really the, the biggest thing we're seeing is there's a lot of trees down, a lot of power lines down. Um, not so much water damage. There is some uh, beach erosion, uh, but we haven't been able to tour down along the beach just yet. So, yeah, I can't give a 100% accurate reading on that. From what you've seen going around the state today, what would you say were the communities, the towns that got hit hardest? Yeah, it's, it's pretty statewide. Uh, you know, we're small, so... You know, a storm of that magnitude impacts the entire state. I'd say the coastal communities were hit the hardest, for sure. And how about the, the boats and the uh, marinas? How did they do in the storm? Did pretty well. Uh, a couple of boats did uh, break a mooring line, I think, and, and washed up uh, on a shore. I, I believe it was Jamestown. Um, but uh, not, not really a lot of boat damage that we saw. Did, it, did you get any reports of anybody being uh, injured or, or even... Killed no, in the storm? No, no, thankfully, no injuries or deaths uh, as a result of the impact of the storm. Yeah, did we, I mean, did we uh, here in Rhode Island uh, dodge a bullet more or less? Uh, I think we, uh, maybe you could say that, right? I think what happened was as the storm approached the coast, uh, it hit cooler waters, it backed off on the intensity of the storm, uh, and, and that, you know, saved us. And I think. You know, the timing with the low tide and not high tide saved a lot of it uh, damage that could have been done for uh, storm surge. Sure, sure. And do you think uh, people, did Rhode Islanders listening to your press conferences, did they heed the warnings this weekend? Yeah, I was in touch with uh, the state police colonel, uh, Jim Manny, and, you know, his folks were out and he was out uh, all during the storm. That was one of his major concerns that people would be out and about trying to get down and look at the surf and he was pretty. Uh, he was pretty adamant about the message to to keep safe, keep back, stay home. 
as we all were, that was the consolidated message. And for the most part, uh, Rhode Islanders stepped up and did just that. That's great. Because, yeah, when was the last time Rhode Islanders uh, saw a storm of this magnitude? It's been a while, right? Uh, yeah, so we got the Super Storm Sandy back in 2012. Uh, but it's been 30 years since we've had uh, a landfall a hurricane of that magnitude. So it's been a while. So you didn't have, uh, I know Colonel Manny had mentioned the surfers and people uh, often getting washed off the rocks when they're trying to see yeah. the storm. Did you have any uh, surfers or people getting washed away? No, I, I did not hear of any of that. And, and talk to us about what, how, it, uh, went, how the storm went out on Black Island. I know that often takes the brunt of these kinds of uh, storms that roll through. Yeah, I had constant conversations. Uh, literally with Block Island uh, almost every hour, uh, every half hour at some points. And, uh, you know, they were good. They, they socked down. Those folks live uh, out there. They're used to heavy winds and high surf. So uh, they were pretty good. They rode it out and uh, didn't experience really any issues. Thank, thank goodness. That, that, that's great. Well, where were you monitoring the storm from over the past couple of days? And how did you follow what was going on? So, uh, being the director at uh, Rhode Island Emergency Management, you know, I was pretty much stationed uh, at the State Emergency Operations Center. That's the hub uh, for all of the uh, storm emergencies. So I stayed there for the most part. I had some folks uh, out and about, uh, you know, working with the locals. But uh, for the most part, we stayed at the uh, Emergency Operations Center. And can you talk briefly about, like, the risk and reward of all of this coastline? You know, it's a beautiful place. It's the ocean state. Uh, but is this one of the prices we pay? Um, you know, hey, it's, it's weather. It's going to happen. And, you know, we're, we're well prepared for these types of things. Uh, and we're in a good spot when, you know, these kinds of events happen. You know, we're also well prepared for winter storms, which actually happen every single year. So... I, uh, I think uh, I don't really see the risk reward thing, but um, I just know that, you know, as far as emergency man management is concerned, you know, we're certainly ready as a state and we feel really confident in our local emergency managers that they that they're as well prepared as we are. Anything that surprised you in going through these last few days um, that you didn't expect going in? Uh, I got to be honest with you, nothing really came along that surprised us. We were ready for it. All right. Very good. Director Pappas, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Good luck out there. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Take care. Take care. Yep, bye-bye. Here are a few other stories you should check out this week from Globebird Island. My colleague Dan McGowan takes a smart look at the latest attempt to develop and secure public subsidies for the long vacant Industrial National Bank building known as the Superman Building. Amanda Milkovitz and Alexa Gagas used public records requests to get 700 radio transmissions and 911 calls showing what happened in the moments leading up to the arrest of three teenagers who were charged with shooting at people across the city with BB guns. The Attorney General's office is reviewing whether two officers used excessive force in that arrest. Also, I take a look at how the city of Central Falls defied the odds and boosted its census count by 16.6%. Despite fears about a proposed citizenship question and the pandemic, the city reached undocumented residents and reversed past undercounts. Find all these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island.
Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Got a tip? Have someone you think we should talk to? We'd love to hear your ideas. Send us an email at rinews at globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next Thursday. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.